This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. Uh, this week, I've been very lucky to tap into another one of my very interesting friends, Jay Goodman. Jay's the CEO of Observatory. Uh, which is an agency that I've been keeping an eye on uh, for quite some time as I've been watching it kind of evolve since the first days uh, when Jay joined CAA or the Creative Artist Agency, which frankly I thought was, we all love our movies, we love our celebrities. When you see, when I think of CAA, and I think most of you probably think of CAA, you think about the talents and, and sports agency. And what's been really interesting is watch uh, how Jay's career and the business that he's built within uh, CA as a marketing agency has evolved all the way into it becoming its own entity called Observatory, which we're going to learn a little bit more about today. But what I really want to talk about is Jay has challenged us uh, with some very innovative thinking around this idea about an, a new marketing funnel, a new upper marketing funnel. And as a marketer and many of the people in this audience who are in growth or own businesses or agency folks, I think this is quite a provocative idea. And if it was anyone else, I'd probably challenge them in a pretty big way uh, for coming up with this kind of idea. But when I think about Jay, he started his career at White and Kennedy. You know, he rose all the way up to the CEO of an agency. He's the bo- a board member of the EFIs. If you're not aware of the EFIs, it's an advertising award focused on effectiveness. So effectiveness matters to him. And his company observatory, he's the CEO of, was actually recognized by Fast Company both in 2021 and in 2020 as actually one of the world's most innovative companies. So when someone with that background says, I want to come in and talk to you about the, a new upper mar- marketing funnel, then I'm going to lean in and listen. So Jay believes this is kind of new, uh, untouched un, uh, territory for marketers, and I'm dying to dig in. And with that, welcome to another week of O-Ship. Jay, welcome. Thanks for joining me on O-Ship. Hey, Freddie. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't know quite how to recover from such a glowing introduction, but, but thank you. I don't know if I'm right about any of this. That's for you and others, but hey, at least it's different. You know, the best thing about O-Ship is you can just say, now, I, 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 you know, is on that format, anything go wrong, anything you say, we just pretend it didn't happen later. We can delete these things off YouTube. I got your back, man. I yeah, got you right. covered. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Look, I've been a big fan of yours. Obviously, we're friends, but a big fan of yours for a long time. I'm I'm always instantly intrigued when I see Freddie Laker is live. Uh, so, so thank you for putting me behind that icon. Well, my, my pleasure. We're going to dig into some fun stuff today. And, uh, you know, again, there's there's so much to unpack here. But I want to start a little bit with your background. You know, I've obviously been, as I mentioned in the intro, I've been watching your career for some time. What was it like when, you know, I guess, how many years ago was it you joined CAA? And when you first joined there, you know, what was the kind of environment? Was that the beginning of the, the marketing group there? Or, you know, I guess, what, what, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, so it was it was 2006. And the, the kind of pre-story, you mentioned, you know, Wyden and Kennedy, and I was lucky enough to work there. And it's absolute heyday. It's had many heydays. It's having one now. This happens to yes. be a sad day, by the way, with, with the passing of David Kennedy. 
Um, so anything. I had no idea. Oh yeah, well, the, the the outpouring on LinkedIn and everywhere for love oh. for for David Kennedy is everywhere. So Amazing. everything we say today about what we're calling today and for for a while Kennedy and Wyden yeah. is in the context of of that great man. And when we get to the advice section and I say something like "be nice," uh, it's because uh, David Kennedy just shared his niceness along with his brilliance and everything else along the way. So sorry very to digress cool. before we've begun, yeah, but. Like, you know, for the thousands and thousands of people who've come through Kennedy and Wyden, not our favorite day. Forgive me. Obviously, an emotional one as well. Yeah. So um, coming out of Wyden, I got a really big uh, opportunity to Hal Reine was retiring, took over Hal Reine on the creative side, billion dollar domestic advertiser in the U.S. telecom company Sprint alone, largest buyer of primetime television in America. Uh, so we were making a lot of commercials. I was sitting in Marin County, how Rodney's based in San Francisco, in my nice new house with my newborn child. And I fast forwarded one of my own commercials while watching an early season of The Amazing Race. And I freaked out. I had a professional existential crisis. I, I like, can't oh, watch this God. thing. Who the hell's going to watch this thing? Uh, I'm from Elmhurst, Queens, New York, my friend. Three generations in a one-bedroom apartment. There's, there's no independent wealth in my line. I've got to make my way through the world. And the thing I was making appeared to me to be imminently going away. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have been represented by Creative Artists Agency. They helped me sell a show to Fox Sports. And so I knew them just enough to be dangerous. Uh, I had been a Michael Ovitz fan kind of it, it, during high school. I used to pour through Business Week and I just loved what he had done uh, with CAA in Hollywood. So I knew them enough. I went down there and talked to them about starting a company that rather than creating interruptive advertising would create content and experiences that attract and engage audiences, otherwise known as entertainment. Uh, and the partners there who had it, to answer your question, a small marketing consultancy who had done some remarkable work. They'd put Coca-Cola and a British show called Pop Idol together. And when Coca-Cola made a media commitment to Pop Idol in the US, it became American Idol and the rest is history. And they had helped a toy company, Hasbro, uh, take a small piece of intellectual property that was doing almost zero toy sales around the world, a toy called Transformers, who'd been a cartoon in the 80s, they helped Hasbro sell that intellectual property or license it to Paramount, who then made a little movie called Transformers. So they had- I, I haven't these, actually heard of any, things, any of these things before, Jay, but I'm sure they're a big deal somewhere. So good, good are, for those people. Yes, exactly. And corner, there are corners of the world where it resonated. <laughs> so, so the point being, they, they definitely were onto something at the intersection of entertainment and marketing, but, but agents, while they're incredibly strategic and relationship-based, ultimately they're transactional. And those were transactions. Let's get Coca-Cola to place a media commitment in Pop Idol so that Fox can bring it to the US. Let's take this intellectual property and license it to Paramount, transactions. The thought was, what if we built a marketing services group? So I pitched them on this company, by the way, and they said, if you do it outside, we'll happily represent you, but then you'll be a phone call away and then we'll have to work on your behalf. What if you built it inside CAA and took our marketing consultancy and then we conceived together the idea of building the infrastructure of a marketing services organization, an ad agency, if you will, strategists, brand team members, obviously lots of creative professionals like me, and then we would be 
instantly connected to the global ecosystem of content creators. And we would be the ones, rather than making an incoming call to CAA, we would be the ones carrying a CAA business card who could call the directors, the writers, the musicians, and not just those CAA represented, because obviously CAA and packaging entertainment has to work with people who are represented everywhere. So we would be instantly connected to the people with whom we'd want to collaborate to make things like the Coca-Cola Polar Bears movie or our stop animation films for Chipotle. This is a really good point. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I kind of alluded to like the actor, actress, you know, time or actor talent, but the reality is it's all these writers and the that's filmmakers, right. I and mean, that—that's maybe even arguably the even more valuable part of the the CA equation. Really interesting. Uh, was that your first time working in, in kind of Hollywood, if you, if you will? Uh, sort of. Um, between midnight and six a.m. while I was working in the ad world, I would ghostwrite music videos for all of our, remember those things called music videos? I guess yeah, they're back oh, yeah. way now. Uh, but uh, I would ghostwrite music videos for a lot of our favorite directors. Spoiler alert, directors don't write their own music video treatments. Uh, at least some of them don't. So I had worked with uh, you know a really broad range of artists um, my, from Miley Cyrus and Mariah Carey and Michael Jackson to Linkin Park and Fatboy Slim, like really wow. great range. So. I had been in and around it enough to know that it was the same skill set being applied differently and that the same things I was tapping to write uh, a commercial or an integrated campaign were, were not dissimilar from what we needed to tap to make a successful music video or television show. But I didn't, you know, I didn't know the importance of a corner table at the grill at lunch or the importance of a quarter table at Dantana's or now Craig's. I learned those things very quickly. Yep. To digress again, what I learned immediately upon getting to quote unquote Hollywood, it is a very, very small town. And even though it's a very global business, the bulk of the content, and it's changed in the last 20 years, obviously the Chinese film market and, and others have grown significantly. But, but really when I got there, there were maybe a thousand to two thousand key people, executives, creators who were driving most of the world's entertainment content. Many of us went to a high school that's bigger than the number of executives and creators who were driving the bulk of that content. And so recognizing that, that Hollywood is a company town in the same way that Detroit was for a long time, maybe still is for automobiles, um, was, it, was a huge kind of penny drop moment yeah. for me, recognizing that the idea then was to really invest in relationships not just be another agency coming up with good ideas who had different connectivity, but really invest in the relationships so that when my colleagues and I from then CAA Marketing, now Observatory, call on the greatest directors, writers, producers, musicians in the world, they know us. Even if they only know like, oh, Observatory, those are those brand marketers that we know. You know, like if we were just the marketing people uh, in the entertainment ecosystem, we were completely cool with that because that gave us a different relationship than any other marketing services agency in the world. Why the, why the shift? That was fascinating, by the way. Why the, I didn't even know about all the cool music video stuff with you. Like I, I, we'd do a, a bigger catch up over drinks sometime, preferably. I know you're moving Please. up to the... Uh, yeah, the Tennessee area. Hopefully, we'll see each other more. Uh, Tennessee, that you know, that's a that's a COVID uh, retreat. Although COVID I love retreat. Nashville, we're spending a lot of time here. But LA, LA is still very much where Observatory is. Well, t tell me why the shift to Observatory. 
So you know, we had a we had a fantastic run inside CAA. You know, you're you're, t- you're talking to the person who quite literally wrote the the latest version of the CAA manifesto, a little white book uh, that we had printed on J.J. Abrams' letterpress at his company, his hand letterpress at his company, Bad Robot. So I absolutely am a believer and advocate for CAA's hyper collaborative culture, and loved that. So you think of agents as these kind of hard, sharp elbowed, eat what you kill. And that's just not true at CA. It is a hyper collaborative environment. You return all your phone calls every day. You return your colleagues' phone calls first so that information is shared internally first. So only the latest information leaves the building. If a colleague asks you to do a favor, you stop what you're doing. You help your colleague because to help your colleague is to help your shared client and then go back to what you were doing. So we really, really benefited as a marketing services agency sitting inside CAA. But something started to happen in our kind of 10th year as we as we went into our second decade, which is CAA marketing went from a complementary service to many of our clients. And our cl- client list was and still is, you know, uh, I say with no humility, really remarkable. So, you know, Diageo, ABNBev, Coca-Cola, General Motors, many, many more, the world's largest advertisers. And they had hired us as a complementary service to their core marketing services agencies. So we would go off and make the Coca-Cola Polar Bears movie, or we would you know, work with Neiman Marcus and create a live event for the next generation of customers and, and premiere it at South by Southwest. Uh, all the things we did were different, content and experience based, maybe had a campaign around them, but were not a key brand or product launch or fully integrated campaign for the year, or very rarely. Well, that started to shift about a decade in. We became more of a core marketing asset, and we were being asked to pitch some of the biggest brands in the portfolios of our clients and potential clients, but we were getting a little bit of resistance to this incredible brand and culture and creative artists agency, not because we weren't objective about the marketplace, objective about the talent we worked with. In fact, we tended to work with talent more outside CAA than inside CAA, perhaps to just prove that we weren't favoring CAA clients. But we did have a little bit of a brand challenge in that ultimately it is true to say that CAA's core business is entertainment and sports. And while marketing leveraged that, nobody's going to wake up tomorrow and say the company that Michael Ovitz founded that today is the world's leading sports and talent and entertainment agency, that that marketing is their core business. So we just, we spun it out. We spun it out to be very clear with backing from CAA. We ran a process as one does. We found an incredible partner in Stagwell. I happen to have known Mark Penn, the founder of Stagwell for over 20 years. He was a, a pollster running the numbers on the ads I was writing for Microsoft when it widened in Kennedy, when Microsoft was sued by the Department of Justice for potentially being a monopoly. A kid who had grown up in Silicon Valley, Dan Wyden sent me up to, up to Redmond, and I was in a room with the wealthiest people in the world writing ads in real time. We'd run them in the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and then this Washington, D.C. pollster that Gates and Balmer and the lawyer Bill Newcomb and others had hired uh, would then tell me every morning what's wrong with my ads. <laughs> and I'd say like, that, that can't be wrong, that's alliteration. And he would say back to me, well, the numbers don't lie, kid, so change the third yeah. sentence. 
Uh, so awesome. we have this wonderful decades long relationship between kind of uh, art and science, if you will. And so selling to him was a fait accompli. We did the deal uh, as one does over lunch in Cannes. Uh, we <laughs> That's years later. So I, I want to ask uh, one one final question about observatory before jumping over to talking about this this new upper funnel. And you know, I feel like when when uh, you know I established this kind of early in the show, I, f- I feel like when you start talking about innovative thinking like that, it's important to understand you know where it comes from. And obviously, observatories had and you know throughout your career works in the world's biggest advertisers. But I happen to personally think that. Uh, getting you know uh, acknowledged by first company as one of the most innovative companies in the world is pretty damn cool. Frankly, it's something I'd love to, I'd love to be on one day as well. So hats off to you on that one. Is there one or two things that think you know kind of put, got you on that list over the last couple of years? Yeah, first of all, look. Speaking of humility, like I was as surprised and humbled as anybody that we made the list once, let alone twice. Uh, the editorial team there, like you, ask really good questions. Uh, and, um, you know, you kind of know where they're going, but you kind of don't, and they don't let on at all as to whether you're, you're anywhere near consideration for the list. So we're, we're blown away to have been, you know, one of the world's most innovative companies two years in a row. So thank you for mentioning that. I think, and we never said the words new upper funnel to them then, because this is something we've kind of conceived recently, but the type of work we were doing. So if kind of our work for Chipotle in our first decade, the, for, you know, for those listening around the world, the, you know, American quick serve restaurant brand, and we tell their brand stories through stop animation films and live events, and we've had a great run with them. And, and that kind of put us on the map. So it was more the specifics around the work we were doing beyond kind of what we were known for with Chipotle. So, um, for example, uh, we are uh, Netflix's brand partnerships agency. So in general, and let me back up for a second, and this will lead to the new upper funnel. We do three things. We create content centric campaigns. So that evolution from CA marketing to observatory as CA marketing, would have, we would have said we create content and experiences that attract and engage rather than interrupt. That is still very much true as our thesis. But the way we do that now, content centric, fully integrated campaigns, So what that means is the center of the campaign doesn't have an interruptive ad. It could be a mobile game. It could be a live experience. It could be a piece of music. It could be obviously a a feature film, a documentary, a short film, anything that audiences, meaning humans, would choose to engage with as opposed to be interrupted with. That sits at the center. And that's our work for Chipotle and dozens of others. The second thing we do And this is where I think we started to make our case with with Fast Company and come to this new upper funnel idea. We create brand partnerships with the streaming platforms. So it's very difficult for a brand to work with a a content company who does not accept advertising. Uh, And so we would try and, and successfully we would work upstream of the distributors and create brand partnerships with the production companies. If you had to guess, small small tangent here, and, and I'm, yeah. this is not a scientific answer I'm, I'm looking for. I'm just saying, if you had to guess what percentage of, let's just say, Netflix shows have uh, you know some some kind of brand part, even if it's subtle and it's totally you know you don't even realize you're being advertised to, what percentages do you think have some form of product, service, brand placement, you know, some kind of brand first partnership in it? If you had to guess, wow, fifty. That's a great question. No. No, I think probably 20 or 30, maybe. 
Maybe. Yeah, so it's not. So it's not. I guess so it's not completely prevalent everywhere at this point. No, it's, yeah, yeah, interesting. No. Um, Movies, I think it's probably ninety-five percent at this point. It feels like anything big that comes. Well, out yeah. The, look, the studios have have massive departments working on integration. Uh, I think the creativity behind it has be- become so much better over time. Uh, it used to be really clunky. They were reaching not, back there, and boy, the label basement. was turned just the right way, you know? Yeah, you know yeah, there, yeah, there's yeah. that great scene in Wayne's World from now, what, 20, 25, almost 30 years ago that Wayne's World came out, where they do the product placement sequence, and it's just gross, and it's hilarious, and it's evolved to where, yeah. you know, it, it, look, they're in a bar, they got to drink a beer, but the label's not perfectly turned to camera, yeah. and the reality is they're not going to drink unbranded beer in a bar. Yeah. So it's yeah. become, I think, you know, much more, much more easily digested by the audience. Uh, but I, I, I really couldn't tell you the percentage on the streamers. I can tell you that our initial approach was just to work upstream. So when you see, for example, Reese Witherspoon's character driving a Buick in Big Little Lies, that is something that we began years before, when that was just in development, creating a relationship with her company making sure that she and others within the company were exposed to the great products that Buick, which had reimagined itself, was bringing to the world. So that by the time that went into production, she believed and the production team believed that that character would believably drive a a Buick. That was done upstream of the eventual distributor of Big Little Lies, which I believe, check me on this, is HBO, HBO Max. If I'm wrong, I'm, I'm sorry. And so HBO Max, so whether it's them or Netflix, but that one I'm pretty sure is HBO Max, does not accept advertising, right? And we did the same for the reimagination of Queer Eye, a D2C men's fashion brand, Bonobos. We worked upstream of Netflix with the production company, Scout, and Bonobos became a segment there. So when that hit Netflix, we actually got a call from the head of brand partnerships there who essentially said some uh, nice version of how the heck did you get that brand into our show? <laughs> and I said, well, we just work with a production company. They needed a segment. It made all the sense in the world. And so that evolved into us becoming Netflix's brand partnerships agency. They use a few different agencies around the world to do it. They got a lot of content to, to yeah. keep a lot of folks busy. Hey, so I want to um, ask, uh, there's a question just popped up from our live audience, Jay. I'd love to ask you. And then from the, we're going to go straight from this into uh, the new upper funnel. So the audience member, and thank you for participating, by the way, asked, quick question to Jay. Knowing my Gen, uh, Gen Z loves bite-sized content, what would be the most influential content across all generations uh, like universally beloved content, I think is what he's try- uh, trying to ask there. That's a great question. By the way, when I said, when I saw knowing my Gen Z loves bite side contents, I assumed the back half of this would be, so could you please speak in shorter sentences and cut it out with an yeah, yeah, okay. Um so, so thank you for not critiquing. You're like silently mocking me. So uh, that's, a, that's a great question, uh, Masayoshi. And I think, you know, in entertainment, there's something called the four quadrant film. Uh, or a four-quadrant television show, which means that, you know, people of all ages, uh, all backgrounds actually uh, watch this. And so I think, you know, in brand world, and I think I mentioned it earlier, you might say the Coca-Cola polar bears. And when they went, when Coca-Cola, whether it's an ad or a short film, which we made years ago, um, with it comes into the world around the holidays, the holidays are a time families around the world come together. Uh, and, and the polar bears, nobody doesn't like 
the polar bears. I think you see that in blockbuster films. So maybe kids aren't going to see Bond, uh, but everybody in the world over a certain age, uh, that studio really hopes will come see Bond. Uh, I think the Minions are a great example of that. Let's jump over uh, to the kind of core of uh, today's conversation. Could you tell us, you know, what, what more about this? You know, dig in kind of really firmly. Tell us what you see as the new upper marketing funnel, and, and let's, you know, I guess really dig into that subject. Yeah. So, so let's get into that. So, the new upper funnel, right? So, the new upper funnel is born out of this thought. It's called the modern marketer's dilemma. The modern marketer's dilemma is this: content consumption on any device, any age. Any human content consumption is up and way up, and pre-pandemic way up, right? However, something else is way up, which is ad avoidance. So, on your smaller devices, you've got ad blockers built into yep. them, right? On your larger devices, you've got the ability to fast forward, and even when you're watching the last bastion of televised entertainment, live sports. What do most humans do when the commercial comes on? They look to a second screen,、yep. and in fact, we program the audience to do that because Twitter lights up right, right then, right when it goes to commercial. That's when brands start sending you something, sometimes tied to the commercial they're running. Most of the time, meant to distract you from it. So, so interruptive advertising has started to fall away. So, the modern marketer's dilemma is content consumption's way up. That should be a good thing if you can interrupt with advertising, but you can't because advertising avoidance is also way up. So, that's the modern marketer's dilemma. So, how do we, as we say in America, leap the horns of that dilemma? We've got to create, as I said before, back to our original thesis, the content and experiences that attract and engage them. That sits at the very top of the marketing funnel. We all, as marketers, have been trained. So you know it all: awareness, consideration, trial, on through purchase, and eventually、uh, advocacy down at the bottom, right? Loyalty and then advocacy. So what sits above the type of awareness we've been buying with interruptive advertising? And by buying, I mean we as marketers we're paying agencies to create it, right? To come up with the idea, then we pay 100% of production. And then we pay 100% of distribution, and we try to interrupt the stuff that that people have lined up to see. In some cases, well, why don't we just create that stuff? So the new upper funnel is brands participating up here, creating literally films and television shows and games and live experiences. All those things that used to be a complementary marketing asset in our early days, we are now saying, well, why can't Nike? With Waffle Iron Entertainment, which we've helped them create, the original Nikes were created in a Waffle Iron, hence the name Waffle Iron Entertainment. Why can't Waffle Iron Entertainment make a movie? They are among the the world's great storytellers, maybe the world's best sports storyteller, right? So why can't they make a movie that's every bit as compelling as what you would see on ESPN as Thirty for Thirty? Well, they can. So the first one we made is called The Day Sports Stood Still. Now we didn't pay for 100% of development like we used to do in advertising. We didn't pay for 100% of production. We had co-financiers. We had collaborators. Antoine Fuqua came and directed it. Imagine on Howard and Brian Grazer's company. They were our co-producers.、Uh, Chris Paul's company, CP3, the basketball player, Chris Paul. They Odip Productions came in as a co-producer alongside Waffle Line Entertainment. We made a movie called "The Day Sports Stood Still." We had cameras on athletes around the world during the COVID shutdown, 
And then in particular, following Chris Paul, the NBA in the, in the social impact and social justice flashpoint around the murder of George Floyd, we had cameras there. So our COVID shutdown movie actually became a, you know, a, a, a witnessed account of how the NBA and importantly its players went through the process to decide that they were going to use the NBA as a platform for social justice. As you'll recall, some of them wanted to not, some of the team members wanted to not play anymore. And then they all decided that they essentially had a list of demands, really important social impact demands. And we had our cameras there for that. Um, and so we ended up selling this movie, The Day Sports Stood Still, to HBO for a profit. So now Waffle Entertainment is making a little bit of direct revenue, even though the existence of the new upper funnel is not to make money in entertainment. Entertainment's a goofy business. I wouldn't suggest getting into it. Um, but the point is, if Nike can move the world forward through sport, right? Nike believes the world's a better sport, a better place with more sport. They want every athlete in the world to make sport a daily habit. Athlete has an asterisk of it over it. There are seven billion athletes. If you have a body. You are an athlete, right? And by sport, they don't just mean competition. They mean competition, movement, and play. So they want every athlete in the world to make sport a daily habit. They're confident that if they tell that story here in my pretend new upper funnel, that they are still as good a marketer as they've ever been in the actual upper funnel and the rest of the funnel moving down. They will get their fair share mm -hmm. of shoe and apparel sales if they can create entertainment that helps move the world forward through sport. So that's our theory on the new upper funnel. It manifests through creating entertainment and it manifests through creating brand partnerships with the streamers who do not accept advertising. Tell you what's really interesting about uh, in, this, in this territory, because I think you know, the, the concept of kind of creating uh, content uh, you know, to draw people's attention in is is not new, but what's changed about it, and I think where you're going with this is, it's, it's it's almost more like a psychological shift in terms of how people are mentally committing to this. And what I mean by this is, you know, I, I'm going to give two examples of great opportunities where people were actually pioneering this thinking ten years ago, and frankly botched it uh, because they 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 couldn't stop thinking about this stuff as an ad. One really great example that always pops into my head, uh, Wrigley used to own this website called uh, Candy Stand, and they had built hundreds of games on it. They didn't understand, you know, they were, you know, millions and millions of people were using it every month. It was an incredibly smart branding uh, engagement. You know, if it still exists today, it probably would be one of the biggest online game sites on the internet. My friend James Baker and the agency WDDG, they basically bought it off their client Wrigley, and he actually sold it many years later and made a lot of money on it. But he bought it off them because they didn't get it. I don't really know how else to say that. They didn't get it. And they were like, well, that we, we, we did that. We ran this, the game thing. Let's get rid of it. Had they stayed into it, they could have spent very little money. It was, people were intentionally coming to them. They didn't have to even run ads on it. But it was an it was an experience I think could have created you know if you've been today it would it would have fit perfectly in that new upper funnel because it was more of a platform that inspired and entertained and, and drew people in. Another great example of that going wrong that I think I mentioned on on a ship once before. A Footlocker uh, when I was at Sapient we built this thing for them called Sneakerpedia and it was basically a, a Wikipedia for sneakerheads. It was freaking awesome great. and it was like every every you know diehard sneakerhead had put their stuff there. It was entertaining it was inspiring it was on par with the audience it 
if, it, if they hadn't turned it down, it would still be, the, in my opinion, the absolute center of the sneakerhead movement today. And they didn't, but it was an ad. They said, oh, well, our ad budget ran out. We just turned it off. And it's like, guys, you could have just paid the bloody hosting bill on this. And the value that that would have had today in the top of their funnel would have been incredible. And I think it's just, it's just a mind change. I think people need to kind of prepare themselves for. And I do think that people are really coming around to this. And, and I can't help but wonder if, you know, some of the trends I've seen in media lately are only going to accelerate this. You know, I, I don't know if you guys are seeing the same stuff uh, but on, on the paid media side of things, but you know, the cost is skyrocketing. It's getting harder and harder to address to folks. So not only was it becoming less effective because people were ignoring it, but it was getting twice as expensive to get ignored and, <laughs> and, and, and twice as hard to target them because of all these new privacy things that people put into place. And it's a, it's a real challenge. So I, I, like I said, I, I love where your guys' heads are at on that, on that front. Who, who do you think is doing it really well out of interest? Wow. You know, quite a few. I think Pepsi a decade ago was doing it remarkably well. And, and interestingly, as, as we had our early conversations in Beaverton at Nike, one of the things we, we pointed to was Uncle Drew. Uncle Drew was a piece of intellectual property they developed through advertising. It was built as a web video in partnership with, with an agency. They recognized that, in, that intellectual property, that storyline, that character had value in it. Uh, and then they went to a studio and they paid to write, they Pepsi paid to have the script written. They paid for development, which is something we always recommend the brands do. Doesn't mean you have creative control. It means you are a an active collaborator in that process. And then they sold the script to a studio who went and made it. And then Pepsi was very helpful in that they helped market the movie with obviously they are truly one of the world's greatest marketers. I say that even though Coca-Cola is one of our longest standing clients, Pepsi, you know, Pepsi absolutely knew what they were doing in that moment. And so we actually used Uncle Drew as an example in our conversations with Nike, which is, you know, Kyrie Irving, who's in the news for other reasons right now. Um, Ky Kyrie Irving, you know, he's your athlete, right? He's one of your 11,000 elite athletes around the world. Um, isn't it crazy that a beverage company made a movie about his basketball playing character uh, before you did, an athletic company. And so I think Pepsi made some, some, early, uh, some, some early strides there. Now, that's the same year uh, that they did the um, Kendall Jenner uh, commercial. So they weren't hitting all home runs that year. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know some, I have some friends who are involved with that. I'm not sure who ever think he'll live that one uh, that one down. It's one of the things uh, you don't bring up. It's a great case study, and, and I actually have yeah. those friends too. And I I teach it uh, at UCLA Anderson at the at the business school at UCLA, and that team is very forthcoming about you know how in the same period of time they were able to do something as forward thinking and different as Uncle Drew, and frankly you know the echo chamber that led them to that different conversation. I think Pepsi's done it well. I think others have done versions of it. You know, Red Bull becomes the obvious example, right? But Red Bull just made media part of the company early on. They made racing part of the company early on. They made plane racing part of the company early on. They decided very early on that it wasn't just a marketing exercise, that they were going to be in the Formula One business. And I think so that's an interesting case study. And, and one thing yeah, I want to argue, you know, it's, it's a really good point. If through the lens of what we just talked about, you could argue there's not many people better at this than Red Bull at this point. 
No, but they paid a lot for it. Now they made it a business, sure. right? So they didn't they didn't treat it as I understand it as a marketing expense, right? And sure. I think you know back to your but maybe your but maybe that's the key. Like maybe the key is when you don't think about it like marketing, it doesn't smell like marketing. And I think the thing about you know this this you know people kind of tuning out ads. I would argue that people have gotten so sophisticated and, and, it, and it's almost like a subconscious thing, like people's ability just to like filter out ads. I mean, one of the things, I, and, and this is crazy given that I'm, you know, I'm in the industry and, and I certainly have been for a long time. I, I struggle to remember like the, you know, a lot of the display ads and things I see out there because my brain, I don't even need a blocker to do it. My brain just tunes them out. I mean, that's why it's so important to have powerful creative, you know? There's all the neuroscientific uh, uh, research and data in the world to back you up on that too. Uh, there's a company called Brain Sites and another one called Dumbstruck that both do the kind of brainwave testing and you know the the human reaction, to, you know whether it's emotional reaction or brainwave reaction to what we see. And there's no question we're tuning out. When, when, well, when, I, when, in fairness, I just want to say I could have just said that as a confidence building exercise myself. I may actually have the memory of a goldfish, and that's the real <laughs> reason. But I'm going to say here on Ooh Ship today, it's because I mentally tuned them out. It's your show. It's your show. what I want to, damn it. That's right. <laughs> so, second ago, you mentioned that uh, you, uh, you teach at UCLA, which I think is also very, very cool. You um, said something in there that I don't want to lose. Um, oh, go for it. With, with, which is the shift in mindset. If, if as a marketer, you are comparing the process and the expense and very importantly, the KPIs associated with this new upper funnel with all of the efficiency metrics of yesteryear's media, then you're then you're dead already. So you have to kind of, as a marketer, rethink those KPIs and say, so, you know, is this all about awareness? Is this about moving the world forward through sport? What story is our brand telling and culture when we make these ads? But what, what, what's happened, unfortunately, is so many of the choices that marketers make are based on media efficiency. And so when you're making, you know, and obviously some creativity comes into it, but ultimately where something runs when you know, and this is very, very true of new to world D2C brands, when you can build a business purely on digital customer acquisition and you have a dashboard sitting right there on your computer that shows you the efficiency of your digital marketing, you're looking something, you're definitely, you're looking at marketing ROI in real time, or at least media spend ROI almost in real time and ROAS, return on advertising spend, almost in real time. And then you start investing. So we have a client, Bonobos. I mentioned them before, a, um, you know, a, a directing consumer men's fashion brand who's really committed to the evolution of the definition of masculinity. Mm -hmm. We did a big new upper funnel piece of marketing with them, a, short, a documentary short about the evolution of the definition of masculinity. This is a hardcore D2C digital customer acquisition company who had to take money out of that very established model and make a bet on the upper funnel. And guess what? Or the new upper funnel. Guess what? You're not going to see those results on your dashboard in real time. And you're not going to see that in kind of your weekly ROAS calculation. But with a six-month look back after making this big new upper funnel commitment, highest ROAS in Bonobo's 10-year company history. Mm -hmm. The upper funnel works. It's why we've been throwing money at television ads for 50 years. Mm -hmm. We know the mm -hmm. upper funnel works, right? But somehow we can't make the leap to new tools that don't have efficiency-based 
metrics associated with them, one has to disavow themselves of that, of that thought that you can know in real time whether your marketing is working. It's a bit of a confidence play. And you know, CFOs and, and media heads who, who look at spreadsheets and then tell their bosses that they were more efficient this year than last year, it's very hard then to make that perceptual leap into, so now we're gonna go spend money and, and work with this musician and create a custom piece of content that we think is going to share our values with the world in such a way that it will lead to more sales, but probably in six months or so. Well, how's that show up on the spreadsheet? We report quarterly results. We're a publicly traded company. And like, somebody's gotta make that confidence to play to say, well, look, Back to the modern marketer's dilemma, we can't spend more money on interruptive advertising next year than we did last year. We just can't because it's getting less efficient. That is a fact. So hopefully mm -hmm. th th these conversations then lead to, we have no choice but to make the confidence play in creating content experiences in the new upper funnel. I, could, I couldn't agree with uh, what you just said more. And I, I was going to ask you about attribution and how people deal with this. And you and you you, you went right there as well. I was going to ask. And so I'm going to ask you one one final question today. And I think that is uh, that but the challenge that you just presented a minute ago, which is a real a real challenge, a meaningful challenge, having the confidence to go out there and propose a new way a new way of marketing and to get off the addiction. There is an addiction, to be clear, to this interruptive kind of advertising. So if you were out there talking to uh, a CMO and they want, you needed to pump their confidence up so they could go to their, their boss and say, Mr. and Mrs. CEO, whoever it is, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift $2 million in media next year over to this, this funnel. What would you advise them to get them to be able to be able to pull this off? I love that you use the word addiction. You mentioned the FEs. I'm the incoming board chair of, of, of FE Worldwide, which is crazy, right? An upper funnel marketer who spent over a decade in entertainment is now going to be part of the team who leads, you know, the global standard bearer for marketing effectiveness. And I wrote a piece uh, alongside FE that, that I believe the title was, it's time to end our addiction to 50-year-old attribution models. And so I love, because we are, addicted to them. I think the, with every new case study, that sale gets easier. You've heard a lot of the pitch in the course of this conversation, the modern marketer's dilemma, the new upper funnel. Um, and, and then I'll point to marketers who are sometimes dismissed because they're so good. Like I, I, it drives me crazy when Nike is dismissed by other marketers and they say, oh, well, that's Nike. Well, how do you think they became Nike? You know what they're most committed to as marketers? Gut instinct and business results. And I didn't come up with that. That was said by Mark Parker, the, the former CEO. They've got, they don't have, they are one of the most sophisticated, highly matrixed global organizations in the world, as are many others, right? But ultimately, when they were choosing, and I had nothing to do with it, this is all anecdotal, but when they were choosing to run the Kaepernick campaign, the old line came up, the greater risk was in not running it, was in not taking a stand around those values in a time when the world needed them most. Was it dangerous from a short-term marketing perspective? Sure, people started burning Nikes. Did they then have the best quarter they'd had in years? Yes, they did. 
And so I, I think this is a strange answer to your question because I wish I had something clear. A lot of the evidence is short-term anecdotal and then long-term shows up in the numbers. And so I point to those anecdotes. We've, I've been in these rooms, as have my colleagues. I've talked to people who've been in those rooms. Here's how they made the decision to take the risk of not just being based on a spreadsheet when making marketing decisions. Did you resonate, you marketer, as if I'm pitching you? Did you, I, I watched your eyebrows raise when we got to idea X. I saw your colleague sit back in her chair. There was a gasp in the corner of the room. Isn't that the exact reaction that we're trying to bring from audiences around the world so that they spend just an, a slightly longer engaged moment with our brand, its values, its product features and benefits? That's our job as marketers. So why are we interrupting and annoying? So I, look, I, have, I, have, I can romance this to death. It, it, tr it truly, or hopefully romance it to life. It, mm -hmm. it truly, there is not a clear attribution model yet. It is gut instinct and business results. But the six month look back window makes that makes a lot of sense yeah, to me. Yeah, be patient. So I think it's a great a great jumping off point for today. And you know, I actually um, I was very caught off guard by the news about David Kennedy at the beginning of uh, this episode. Uh, I've always had enormous amount of respect for um, that agency of role. They've inspired me for for many many years. So I uh, would love to dedicate this uh, entire episode uh, to David Kennedy, which I think is is uh, justifiable. And I think uh, if he was uh, giving us advice, I think he would also say, uh, be bold and 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 go out there and, and do big things. So Jay, I want to thank you again for your time and, and joining us today. If you get a chance to go check out Observatory, you should go do that. Uh, it, you know, Jay and Observatory have a very, very cool uh, history and, and, and book of work. Um, and then for those of you watching, whether you're tuning in uh, via uh, any of our live streams, whether that's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, or you or LinkedIn even, or whether you're watching this in the after show, uh, post show on any of those platforms, thank you very much uh, for tuning in. And if you're listening via our uh, audio podcast, we're thrilled you're there. It's growing really, really nicely. And, and uh, we love that, you know, whether you're in your car, taking a jog or whatever it is you're doing, if you're tuning into O'Ship, uh, thank you. Thank you again. So with that, uh, we thank you for your time. Jay, thanks again. And have a great week. And thank you again for tuning into O'Ship. The O'Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O Ship Show.